Was Canada's involvement in the major conflicts of the 20th century truly about a valiant fight for freedom and democracy, as Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper has maintained in numerous public speeches? Who were the major players driving Canada and other countries into war? What were the political and economic forces that triggered and maintained World War I? How has that conflict shaped the world we live in today, and what lessons can be learned from that tragic conflict? On the occasion of Remembrance Week, and on the year marking the 100th anniversary of the start of World War I, the Global Research News Hour attempts to shatter some of the myths surrounding the past conflicts in which Canada has become engaged with the help of activist and author Eve Engler and with historian and author Jacques Powells. On today's program, Lest We Forget, Rethinking the War to End All Wars. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 7, 2014. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. You can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. So, one of the two first international monitors on site saw conclusive evidence that the Malaysian plane had been hit by very, very strong machine gun fire, not by ground-based missile fire. Peter Hisenko's reconstruction of the downing of that airliner was here being essentially confirmed on site by one of the two first OSCE international monitors to arrive on site while the wreckage was still smoldering. Unlike a black box interpretation analysis long afterward by the Russian government or by the British government or by the Ukrainian government, each of which governments has a horse in this race, this testimony from Bosirkiu is raw, independent, and comes from one of the two earliest witnesses to the physical evidence. That's powerfully authoritative testimony, and it happens to confirm pilot Peter Hisenko's theory of what happened. Bosirkiu arrived there fast because he negotiated with the locals for the rest of the OSCE team who were organizing to come later. Bosirko speaks the local languages there, Ukrainian and Russian. That's from the article, Evidence is now conclusive. Two Ukrainian government fighter jets shot down Malaysian Airlines MH17. It was not a Buk surface-to-air missile. By Eric Zeus, posted November 5th. The cause of the shooting down of Malaysian passenger plane MH17 on July 17th, while that plane was flying over the conflict zone during Ukraine's civil war, is becoming clearer and clearer, despite the rigorous continuing attempts by Western news media to cover it up 
and to hide from the public the evidence that clearly shows what brought down this airliner. The BBC had previously posted to their website on 23 July 2014, just six days after the event itself, a news report in Russian via their Russian service about the downing, but they quickly removed it without explanation. Fortunately, however, some Russian speakers had managed to download it before it was yanked, and one of those downloads is still up at YouTube, having been posted there on July 28th with English subscripts and with the headline, Ukraine Eyewitness Confirm Military Jet Flew Besides MH17 Airliner, colon, BBC Censors Video, 25 July 2014. So this valuable eyewitness testimony to the event is available despite Western news media or propaganda media, and the reason for the news suppression is clear from anyone who views that BBC report, which presents several eyewitnesses, all of whom were interviewed separately as individuals, not as a group, and yet all of whose testimonies report having observed the very same basic narrative of at least one military jet rising toward the airliner just before it came down. In other words, BBC had yanked this piece because it didn't confirm the West's storyline, which says that Ukrainian pro-Russian separatists fired a Buk ground-based missile at the airliner, thinking that the civilian plane was a Ukrainian government warplane about to bomb them and their families. That's from the article, Western News Suppression About the Downing of MH17 Malaysian Jet by Eric Zeus, posted November 6th. Today, an estimated 55% of U.S. oil production and all the production increase of the past several years comes from fracking for shale oil. With financing cut off because of economic risk amid falling oil prices, shale oil drillers will be forced to halt new drilling that is needed merely to maintain a steady oil output. The aggressive U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, its war against Syria's al-Assad regime, its hardball oil sanctions against Iran, its sanctions against Russian oil projects, its cynical toleration of ISIS in Iraqi oil regions, its refusal to intervene to stabilize the Libyan oil economy but instead to tolerate disorder – are all premised on a cocky view in Washington that the USA is once again the king of oil in the world and can afford to play high-risk oil geopolitics. The official government agency responsible for advising the CIA, Department of Defense, State Department, and White House on Energy, the U.S. Department of Energy, has issued projections of U.S. shale oil growth based on myths and lies. That has led the Obama White House to launch oil wars based on those same myths and lies about the rosy prospects of shale oil. That comes from the article, The Collapse of Oil Prices, Has Washington Just Shot Itself in the Oily Foot? by F. William Engdahl, posted November 6th, originally appearing at New Eastern Outlook. Briefly, the Navy is proposing to turn a large part of Washington's magnificent Olympic Peninsula, as well as a portion of northeastern Washington into electronic warfare training ranges. A giant antenna resembling a house-sized golf ball will be installed at the Naval Station at Moclips, just outside the Quino Indian Reservation on the Olympic Peninsula. According to the data in the environmental assessment, I calculate that it will have an effective power of 5 million watts. 
Needless to say, the peace of the Olympic Peninsula will be destroyed forever. The radiation in both locations will impact predominantly Native Americans. That is from the article, Electromagnetic Warfare Training Range to be Established in Washington State's Olympic Peninsula by Arthur Furstenberg, posted November 5th, originally appearing at TakeBackYourPower.net. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu. In Canada, the annual Memorial Day known as Remembrance Day was conceived principally as an occasion to reflect on the sacrifices of soldiers who lost their lives while serving in military conflicts. It is commemorated on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, coinciding with the signing of the Armistice in 1918, which marked the official end of World War I. Remembrance Day typically honors the service of military personnel in the 20th century conflicts in which Canada has participated. But what exactly was the role of Canada in those conflicts, and what does her military policy say about the values that Canada espouses? To discuss this, we're joined by Eve Engler. He is an activist and author of numerous books on Canadian foreign policy, including The Black Book on Canadian Foreign Policy, Canada and Israel, Building Apartheid, and his latest, The Ugly Canadian, Stephen Harper's Foreign Policy. Thanks uh, once again for joining us, Eve Engler. Thanks for having me. Okay, um, you wanna, maybe we should go back to uh, the First World War. Uh, based on, on the research that you've done, what would you say was Canada's principal interest in becoming involved in that conflict? Supporting the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, very clearly... And um, the, it was about, this was the high time of, uh, of imperialism, European imperialism across the globe, uh, particularly in Africa. And uh, there was competition from, well, between the dominant imperial powers, Britain and France, and the up-and-coming imperial power, uh, Germany. And the... It, it led to uh, a major conflict where uh, uh, I think 600,000 Canadians uh, end up fighting. Huge numbers of them end up dying and being uh, injured, and probably almost everyone who went was was damaged in one way or another, psychologically or physically. Um, so it was took a huge toll on on the Canadians who went to fight, um, but it also took a huge toll on. Uh, on people from from other countries, and and you know, and I'm currently doing a book about Canada's role in Africa, and it was actually a Canadian uh, who headed up uh, the um, the British. Uh, he was actually in charge of British and French troops in uh, in, um, in West Africa that can- that conquered the Cameroons from from uh, from uh, uh, Germany. Um, so basically, they used World War One as a as a sort of pretext. To uh, to capture more of of uh, West Africa, both France and uh, and England did that, and it was a Canadian who was in charge of that, and it was Canadians who fought uh, a number of different places uh, uh, in Africa during World War One. So it was it was it was you know there was no doubt that uh, people and many of them, some of them were at least were were conscripted who went to go fight in World War One. But we have to also remember to to a large extent, in the case of World War One. Uh, most of it, early on at least, was was voluntary. So people choosing to fight, and people were caught up 
um, by the the glory of the empire and the glory of fighting for uh, for Britain's empire and uh, and uh, um, that's the uh, the main uh, um, you know uh, I think that's the the main story of World War One. Um, today it's gotten to the point of you you'll hear things like Stephen Harper and and others who who, who talk about World War One as a fight against fascism or a fight against totalitarianism or they sort of try to obscure what World War they sort of bring World War One World War Two sort of together in some way, um, but it was very clearly a completely uh, destructive, uh, useless uh, uh, war. Where at one point there was over a year where they they didn't move more than like to, um, uh, ten kilometers uh, uh, in uh, in France, where you know, tens hundreds of thousands of people were slaughtered over minuscule uh, pieces of uh, pieces of land. And uh, the Canadian elite and the whole Canadian political culture very much um, uh, supported. Uh, supported this uh, this this you know brutal um, uh, interimperial conflict. I'm curious about the, the the role at home because I know that in Quebec there there was resistance to uh, what you know is or essentially the British Empire when Quebecers don't necessarily identify themselves as as you know part and parcel of that empire. Canada is an independent country. What was the nature of the conversation during the war? Well, it was incredible jingoism in most parts of the country uh, in terms of uh, favoring the war. Um, obviously, in Quebec, that was that was different. There was there was instances actually in Quebec. Uh, there was obviously lots of opposition to the war and opposition to uh, to conscription. But but uh, there was uh, there was at times there was um, uh, McGill students who went over to the from French universities and attacked the French universities, you know, so for for being pacifistic or, or whatever. Um, so sort of like sort of fascistic thugs, if you like, uh, Anglophone thugs who were uh, um, uh, attacking uh, perceived or, or, or actual um, anti-war kind of sentiment. Got to remember that uh, you know someone like Ginger Goodwin out on the uh, labor leader out on the West Coast was was was, was not 100% confirmed, but it but most of the historical evidence suggests was 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 killed by the uh, by uh, police agents for his for his opposition uh, to to the war so it was a, it was a brutal uh, the, you know the, the state um, uh, uh, repression in terms of those who dissented was was quite uh, uh, extreme so you know it's kind of particularly ironic to hear Harper talk about you know World War one is about fighting against totalitarianism when in fact uh, if anything within Canada at least World War one really heightened uh, sort of totalitarian kind of uh, kind of instincts of 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 uh, of the government. So so I mean that's you know as in recent weeks and months we've seen with uh, what you know what's happened in in Ottawa and uh, you know the killing of the, um, the soldier in the, just outside of Montreal. Uh, uh, that, there's been a you know a growth of sort of jingoistic kind of rally behind the flag type of sentiment um, but we're talking about a, a, a whole different scale uh, during World War one of just you know the extremeness of this was was uh, infinitely greater today so in some ways we should be you know well there's still some major issues on, on that on the front of nationalistic jingoism and and, and war today um, in many ways, it's uh, it's less uh, it's less extreme than it than it was uh, historically, and I think that's in part because of the uh, 
the anti-war movements, uh, you know, tracing right back to uh, uh, to World War One. And one other thing about well, one side thing about World War One, we have to remember also is that Canada sent troops to uh, try to crush the uh, the uh, the Bolshevik Revolution in, in, in Russia. Um, you know, very very hostile act uh, uh, to Russia, and uh, hard to argue that it was you know, and it was very much a sideshow to. Uh, to World War One, and even once World War One ended, they initially claimed they were sending the troops to, to get Russia to re-enter the war, which was which was never never true. But but even after World War One had ended, the troops stayed uh, for months. So so you know really completely showing that that, that pretext was was nonsense. Um, uh, and but you know there was also at the same time there were uh, uh, Canadians uh, who refused to. Who, who refused to fight? You know, who were in the in the army, who refused to go to uh, to Russia to to participate in in, in undermining the attempts to uh, to change uh, social conditions in, in 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 Russia at that time. So so there was um, you know, credible uh, jingoism, incredible warmongering, but there was also uh, um, signs of dissent and and people refusing to uh, to follow orders that were. Uh, that were leading to uh, all kinds of uh, destruction. Now, what about World War II? Because that's seen as a, a more um, acceptable war. I mean, we fighting against the forces of fascism, uh, Hitler, and uh, of course, um, you know, Italy. There was uh, you know Mussolini and so on. So, um, whether or not it was a, a good thing or a bad thing, what was Canada's motivation in participating in that war? I mean, it's, it's clear that after the fact um, <laughs> uh, you know undermining and uh, destroying uh, Hitler and Nazism was, uh, was a positive was a positive thing I, I don't, almost, almost no one would argue I think against that I would hope um, uh, whether that was the initial motivation or, or how the Canadian motivation was sort of formed was it what was Canada trying to fight anti-semitism was Canada trying to fight fascism no, that that is that was not the primary motivation of Canadian policymakers, and uh, uh, the primary mo- motivation, as as, as uh, one on uh, World War II puts it very clearly, uh, it was to to support the British Empire, just like it was in World War One. Uh, the British Empire was was challenged by uh, Nazi expansionism, while the Nazis were focusing their ire against uh, the Soviets. There was quite a bit of support for Hitler. Uh, Prime Minister Mackenzie King uh, visits uh, Berlin and, and uh, Germany in, in the mid-1937, not very, not very long before the war breaks out, and he is very clear in his diary. Uh, he's quite anti-Semitic, uh, and very clear in his diary that he has all kinds of support uh, for Hitler. Personal, he personally has, you know, a uh, great deal of sympathy for for Hitler, and I can't remember the exact quotes, or but how Hitler's role in in lifting up the German peoples and and, and, and stuff like that. Very, you know, not no no ambiguity in terms of uh, in terms of uh, expressing uh, expressing a sympathy for for Hitler. So so it, after the fact, it has been tried. You know, there's been an attempt to portray it as some sort of fight against uh, you know the evils of 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 Nazism in terms of specifically in terms of uh, anti-Semitism and in terms of uh, uh, the fascistic uh, 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 element of the system. But 
that there was actually a great deal of sympathy for those for those elements in in, in Canada. And and again, um, uh, you know, doing this currently doing this this book on Canada's role in Africa, um, there's throughout World War II there's a complete acceptance by Canadian officials of, of British and French colonial rule in Africa, and there's Canadians who will fight, particularly in northern Africa. Um, and, uh, and you know, while they would say they were fighting to, to you know, undermine uh, Nazism or undermine the Italian-German, uh, uh, you know, as part of that war, uh, at the same time they were, you know, propping up um, British-French uh, colonial rule. Uh, so from the perspective of Africans, for instance, um, you know, was World War II a, a, a good thing or, or, you know, how, how does Canada's role in the war, um, how, how, you know, how do you look at it from their perspective? So, um, you know, clearly World War II, after the fact, uh, the destruction of Nazism, positive. I don't think anyone or very few people would argue with that. Mm. Some of the ways the war was fought in terms of destroying German cities, uh, that really it was civilians that were being targeted. I think there's some major questions there about, you know, major war crimes and stuff like that. But, um, but uh, yeah, the, the, you know, the, the effect of World War II was, you know, ending the, uh, the, the Nazism, at least, was obviously a very good thing. Just to help secure that point, um, in just a few years previous, there was the Spanish Civil War in which uh, many Canadians tried to organize in support of the government uh, against a, a fascist takeover. And uh, just the, the way the Canadian government responded to uh, you know, Canadians whose sympathies were with the, the democratically elected government is quite telling about their attitudes towards the fight against fascism. Yeah, no, that, that is an incredibly important part of the, the lead-up and, 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 uh, and that the, the response of, of Ottawa and uh, London and, and others very much emboldened um, uh, Mussolini and Hitler, uh, because they 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 poured huge amounts of uh, weaponry into backing the uh, Franco's uh, fascist fascist forces, and uh, and to a large extent, um, the Canadian uh, political elite went along with that. Uh, they brought in the War Measures, uh, not the War Measures Act, the Foreign Enlistment Act, to uh, to block uh, to make it illegal for Canadians to go fight on behalf of the. Uh, the democratic forces in Spain, uh, that doesn't act, it's still, uh, still on the books, uh, until today, uh, but, uh, very selectively applied. So it's sort of, you know, focused on if you go fight for the, you go, if you join to the tens of thousands of Canadians who joined American military fight to fight in Vietnam, that of course was not, uh, was not brought forward, but it was, you know, used to stop, uh, uh, Canadians in, in 1936. So, so that was, that's an important part of the, of the lead up to, uh, to, uh, to World War II and, 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 and a, you know, sort of proof of, of how uh, Ottawa was was uh, was sympathetic to uh, to the British and uh, to, to the uh, to the Nazis and, and, and not antagonistic to uh, um, to uh, to uh, Italian and German expansionism so long as it was uh, it was uh, focused on undermining uh, democratic and, and leftward forces and and to some extent is the same is true with regards to uh, to, Brit- uh, to Italy's invasion of Ethiopia in 1936, um, which was clearly against the League of Nations, clearly illegal. Uh, there was against the agreements that had been signed between Italy and uh, 
and uh, Ethiopia going back a uh, number of years, um, and it was a horrible slaughter of, of, of Ethiopians by, uh, by the Italians. And uh, there was a push at the, at the League of Nations. There was actually a Canadian who, who, uh, who was part of a commission the League of Nations created to, to, uh, to bring in uh, sanctions, particularly oil uh, and uh, uh, coal sanctions against uh, uh, Italy, and uh, and even though it was actually a Canadian who was part of the one drafting this this proposal, uh, the Canadian government distanced itself from the proposal, and there was even actually some British support. But uh, the Canadian officials didn't want didn't want to move down that path of really uh, uh, sanctioning uh, Italy, which again emboldened uh, the fascistic forces and, and, and you know, very much reinforced uh, uh, European colonialism uh, in Africa. So. So if you look at the history leading up to World War II, it's very clear that, again, the motivation was not uh, let's fight anti-Semitism, let's fight fascism. In fact, in two, in two major instances, they had, uh, had greatly, uh, i.e. Spain um, and, and, uh, and uh, Ethiopia, they had uh, greatly uh, enabled, uh, Canada had greatly enabled the fascistic forces uh, against a lot of opinion in the cases uh, in the case of Spain. There was obviously uh, um, many Canadians who... who who risked their life to, to go fight for democratic forces, uh, but also in the case of, uh, to a much lesser extent, but in the case of uh, Ethiopia, there was, uh, you know, the CCF was pushing for the, the oil sanctions proposal uh, in the House of Commons, and uh, and uh, and the uh, the government of the day was uh, was not uh, not having any of it. So, uh, so yes, uh, clearly um, <clears throat> the history in the lead up to World War II shows that uh, that the motivation was not. Um, what it's sort of being portrayed as uh, as today. Now, Eve, uh, we're uh, on the uh, eve of Remembrance Day, and uh, of course, this is an occasion where, at least in a bygone era, I, I remember the sentiments "Never again," and "Lest we forget." If we were really true to those imperatives, what? Do you, what would you argue that uh, ordinary citizens who really would like to see an end to war and, and injustice, what should they be doing, uh, you know, perhaps as an alternative to the, the traditional wearing of the poppy and uh, attending Remembrance Day ceremonies? What, what do we need to do as citizens to secure a better world? Well, I think the, I mean the first thing there is there is a campaign, there is the white poppy campaign, and uh, and it, 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 uh, uh, it's it's basically says we should be recognizing all victims of war, not just uh, you know, the Canadians who, who fought and died, but also the, the Koreans uh, who, were, who were killed in, in large numbers by, uh, by Canadian forces in Korea. And between 1950 and 1953, the, the, uh, the Afghans who have been uh, you know, uh, killed by Canadian and, and Western forces over the past uh, decade or so. Um, so to take, take a more holistic uh, to, to, and, and, and to take when you when you when you start recognizing the victims on, on you know everywhere, not just the Canadian soldiers, it, it puts it softens the the potential for the sort of jingoism that comes along with with uh, with with uh, the poppy and, and Remembrance Day. Obviously, I don't, I don't the the, Cana- the Canadian soldiers who have been hurt and maimed um, in wars. Um, there should be some degree of of, of you know remembrance for for what's happened to them, uh, but when it becomes clearly part of this sort of jingoism of 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 
our side being being hurt and, and the implication there is that um, that uh, that we're righteous and and and, and moral and, and and basically it, it gives the the political uh, leaders of the day um, the sort of ideological cover to continue with uh, with more uh, more wars we're ending you know, we're seeing that right now where the reaction of of Ottawa to 20 years of Iraq being uh, being bombed and uh, occupied and and, uh, and having all kinds of uh, you know they're having their, their politics be be uh, controlled and uh, influenced and uh, by Washington or London um, the reaction to the Canadian political elite uh, to to recent developments in, in, in Iraq is to you know con- to continue that trajectory of, uh, of bombing and intervention and and uh, which you know I think to 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 a, to a large extent is is what's brought the uh, the uh, the uh, problems uh, in Iraq that there that, that exist today the rise of uh, ISIS to to uh, Islamic State to uh, uh, to where it is so the, the the option of more bombing is not the is not the uh, is not the right option. So I think that you know a simple thing is to is to is to, to wear the white poppy. Uh, here in Montreal, Sheikh uh, Laguerre is actually organizing a um, a, uh, a little sort of uh, action um, on Remembrance Day in terms of uh, the white poppy campaign and and uh, and uh, and drawing attention to to the uh, the ongoing or the, the just started. Uh, uh, Canadian war in, in Iraq. Um, so I think that, that, that those kind of initiatives are what, what, um, um, where the you know where people who are who are peace-minded and who who want to see uh, an end to the destruction of war and the and the, the horrors of war for for everyone. Um, I think that's some of that w- where people should uh, focus their energies on. Eve Angler, thank you very much for joining us today. Eve Angler is an activist and the author of a number of critiques of Canadian foreign policy, including The Black Book of Canadian Foreign Policy, Canada and Israel Building Apartheid, and his latest, The Ugly Canadian, Stephen Harper's Foreign Policy. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the start of the First World War. World War One was the war that was supposed to end all wars. Unfortunately, that hasn't been the case but what exactly was World War I all about? What triggered it, and what were the forces that conspired to generate it? I'm joined right now by Jacques Powells. He is the author of The Myth of the Good War, America in the Second World War, and Beneath the Dust of Time, a history of the names of peoples and places, and of an upcoming book dealing precisely with World War I. Jacques Powells, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure being here. Was World War One, in some sense, an inevitable outcome from the growth of the Industrial Revolution, or was it just some sort of a strange uh, historical well, idiosyncrasy that just got out of hand? Well, Michael, I am, I am not one who subscribes to the idea that the First World War broke out unexpectedly uh, and against the will of most uh, people, um, certainly not against the will of our leaders, as it's sometimes mentioned. As some authors speak of how our leaders sort of sleepwalked into the war. I don't believe that. 
some people, some historians say that the war was a, a sort of a, a collective, sort of an accident of history. You might say a road accident uh, of history. Others was that called it as the great, the great stupidity, the great collective stupidity, which means that it's overall to blame for whatever reason. I don't see that. I think the war was um, not an accident. I think it was in the air for a long time. I think the, um, the, the history of Europe in the 19th century and in the early 20th century was basically leading towards war for a number of reasons. And in my book, The First World War, I actually pay a lot of attention to the 19th century because in many ways the First World War was the, the fruit, the product of that long 19th century. And it was also, of course, the, 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 the mother, you might say, the First World War was also the mother of the, the shorter 20th century. Uh, but uh, let's look for a moment at how the 19th century produced the Great War, the First World War. The 19th century was a century of revolutions and wars, wars and revolutions, starting with the French Revolution. Early the, early, in other words, the, the 19th century has often been described as the long 19th century. It started in some ways with the French Revolution of 1789, which was followed by wars, including the Napoleonic Wars. Then there were revolutions in 1830 and 1848, which also basically led to the wars with the Russian armies occupying Poland and moving into Budapest and you name it. Then the Franco-Prussian War of 1771 led to the Paris Commune, a pretty uh, nasty little revolution, you could call it. And, of course, in 1905, Russia went to war with Japan, and that produced a revolution in Russia. And then you have the First World War, and that's a big war that produces a revolution in Russia again. So there is a dialectic here uh, between war and revolution, where uh, the one sort of causes the other one and vice versa. And I think we cannot look at World War I without looking at that in this context. It was a, a war that was also linked up with the idea of revolution. And here I should say right away, that our, the leaders of uh, Western European countries and also Central European countries, like Germany and, in fact, of Eastern European countries like Russia, the leaders of these countries, the French, the British, the Germans, and the Russians, they really all wanted war for a number of reasons. They thought war was going to be uh, going to resolve a lot of social and economic problems. And the great social problem war was supposed to resolve was the threat of revolution and uh, the push towards democratization, which our leaders, being elitists and not in favor of democracy, really disliked very much. But they were particularly concerned about the specter of revolution. It seemed to them, in the years leading up to the 1914, that there was a race uh, on, a race between war and revolution. And which would come first? That was a big question. If revolution comes first, it's the end of the, you might say, the civilization as the elites of Europe knew it. Um, if, on the other hand, war would come first, it may put an end to the revolution. So that's really one of the reasons, and it's not the only one, it was an economic reason as well, why the elites of Europe, the French, the British, the Germans, the Russians, all of them really were hoping for a good war to clean the air, and actually a war that would serve as antidote to social revolution. That was really one of the major, major reasons of war. So the fear of social revolution. And also, next to that, economic reasons. But maybe we can talk about that later on. For sure. Um, are you talking about that this war is a sort of like inoculation against these uh, uh, revolution, these social revolutions? Of course, there was the Bolshevik Revolution, which uh, which came along very shortly. Um, what was the interplay between World War that that war and the, that the rise of the Bolsheviks? 
Well, the, uh, here we go. Here we are dealing with the dialectic of war and revolution. Some historians prefer to talk about the First World War and stay away from the topic of the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, which was part two of the Russian Revolution, part one being the one in the spring of 1917, the Bolsheviks coming to power in October 1917. Um, the war was intended by the elites, was watered by the, the elites of Europe, was in many ways provoked by the elites of Europe, who were hoping that war would serve as an antidote to revolution. Uh, but in fact, it's one of the ironies of history that war produced exactly the opposite. Rather than putting an end to this specter of revolution, chasing, uh, chasing away once and for all the specter of revolution, as war was supposed to have done, the war actually would end up producing the revolution. And that's, uh, that's a great irony in a sense, but uh, it's understandable if you know what the war actually ended up doing to people instead of being short and victorious and basically ending up ending up reinforcing the existing social political systems in Germany, Russia, Britain, France, and so on, you know, it basically undermined the loyalty of people to the established order. It undermined their, their faith in their leaders, in the political, religious leaders, and so on. They did all of that, and as a result of that, eventually it made many, many people, in some countries more and other countries fewer, basically... Um, ready, eager, and willing to overthrow the old system, in other words, make a revolution. And these revolutions actually happened in quite a few countries. We shouldn't forget that. The revolution succeeded in Russia, where the Bolsheviks took control of it. But we should not forget that there was also a big revolution at the end of the war in Germany, which came close to succeeding and was had to be smothered in blood. And very few people realized that even in Great Britain, there was a kind of revolutionary situation at the end of 1918, at the beginning of 1919, with major disturbances and strikes and problems in cities like Liverpool and Glasgow and Belfast, even the mutiny in one of the ships of the Royal Navy and so on. And uh, that problem could only be resolved by bringing in major social and uh, political reforms, like an extension of the, of the suffrage and uh, bringing in the eight-hour workday and so on. Uh, these concessions were needed to, to basically defuse a, a revolutionary situation. So there is a, a direct, you know, direct causal relationship between the war, the First World War, and the revolution. The revolution, not only the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, but the revolutions in general, and the revolutionary movements. And then the war also caused the, the reforms, a certain amount of democratization, which also the elites had hoped to stop before the war, by means of war, but which, again, the war forced them to, to introduce even more democracy than before. And the way I see it is that the war, the First World War, was not a war for democracy, as it was called by Wilson. It actually was much more a war against democracy. But, of course, you had to use slogans to sell the war to people. You could hardly tell people that it was a war against, you know, an attempt to give them more power and more input in government. So we had to pretend that it was for democracy. That's not really true. That's a rationale that were invented. It was told that it was the war to end all wars, and that wasn't true. And indeed, I think uh, we also rationalized our entry into the war and our role in the war in many other ways. In the case of Canada, for example, the idea was, was, was conjured up that our contribution to the war made Canada really the nation it is today. You know, the idea that on the battlefield of Vinnie, Canada was born. And I think this is absolute mythology. I think this is not true. I think a country like Canada did not need a war to be born. I mean, why does that be blood involved, really? Many countries have emerged in, from on the scene of history without bloody wars and, and bloodshed and, and sacrifices like that. But, of course, that whole story is, is, is a way in which even historians, even today, 
rationalize the slaughter, rationalize the massacre by saying, well, something good came out of it. At least Canada was born on the battlefield. Therefore, the sacrifices were worthwhile. I don't believe that for a minute. Now, it seems that central to the whole, uh, this whole war dynamic was this issue of alliances. And you had on the one hand uh, these, uh, the allies, you know, which uh, incorporated the United Kingdom, France, and the, the Russian Empire, and then the central powers of Germany and Austria-Hungary. And as a result of those alliances, you could have the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria uh, just triggering this whole, I don't know, domino effect that, that, that just spread beyond the region. Well, well, I am not a big fan of uh, the kind of theory that the war basically broke out because of the alliances. Yeah. It is true that the system of alliances uh, helped or, or, or explained the ways in which the war was started. I believe the reason, the root causes for the war is that the war was wanted by our elites and that they hoped to achieve great things on the social uh, and even economic field. Uh, we can talk about economics later, I think we should. But uh, the, the, the fact that there were military alliances, which automatically kicked in in case of a threat of war, certainly didn't help the cause. It is known that, for example, France and Russia were allies, and that if one was going to be involved in a war against Germany, that the other one was automatically going to take part. There's no doubt about it. But, uh, and uh, the fact is that the, the, the assassination in Sarajevo was used as, a, as, a, as an opportunity to start a war which people wanted. I don't for a minute believe, and I think it's silly to believe, that the assassination in Sarajevo, which by itself was very unimportant, really, was the cause of the war. Uh, it was simply the pretext which countries that, whose leaders wanted to go to war needed to actually go to war. And at that stage, the alliance system <clears throat> kicked in. It is true that having allies, the alliance system also caused people, caused our leaders who wanted war, to want war sooner rather than later. And let me clarify that with the example of France, for example. France, the leaders of France wanted a war against Germany, if only to get Alsace-Lorraine back, but that's not was by no means the only reason. Uh, and they knew, the leaders of France knew that France alone could never defeat Germany militarily. It was impossible. So France needed help from a big, a big friend. That big friend we found in Russia. Russia, which, whose power, whose military power, was highly overestimated before the First World War. So France thought, with Russia on our side, we, we can beat Germany. Now, in fact, there's no way that we could lose against Germany with the mighty Russians on our side. As I mentioned, they overestimated the power of Russia in 1914 as much as in 1941, the Germans would underestimate the power, the military power of the Soviet Union. So in, German, in, in France then, in 1911, 1912, 1913, and in 1914, they're counting on the big Russian bear to help them you know, kick the butt of the, 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 of the German eagle, so to speak. But, but there's a big concern here. Because the alliance between the Republican France and authoritarian Tsarist Russia is not a natural alliance. It actually goes against nature. France was the most democratic country in Europe at that time, and Russia the most authoritarian, the most undemocratic. And would that alliance survive the death of the Tsar and the arrival of a new Tsar who might be less Francophile, for example? Big question. Also, might Russia not go through a revolution again, as it did in 1905, which might overthrow the Tsarist system, and thereby also basically put an end to the alliance with France, which is exactly what would happen in 1917. The Bolsheviks would come to power and would pull Russia out of the war, causing great problems for France and her allies, because it would allow the Germans to turn an entire army against, uh, the, against the Western allies. So the, the French were concerned that the alliance of Russia might not last forever, 
Therefore, the French generals <clears throat> and the months before the First World War were putting pressure on the polit political leaders to start this damn war as soon as possible, while we can still count on the Russian bear. Because if for some reason the Russian bear ceases to be our ally, we can forget beating Germany in a war. So therefore, better war sooner rather than later. There are areas of the world which are very rich in resources, and that we could see these imperial powers, and I know Vladimir Lenin, among others, said that this is essentially uh, a war of imperialism, uh, my paraphrase. Yes, well, Lenin observed what was happening, and he wrote his famous book, a little book, the Panther, really, on imperialism in 1916, actually drawing conclusions from what he saw happening in 1914 and the way he understood the war to have you know, reasons for the war, uh, why it happened. Well, well, let's talk about countries and territories with resources. It's a fact that after 1918, after 1914, sorry, there was keen competition between major industrial powers, uh, the ones that would be involved in the war. Great Britain was the greatest industrial power of much of the 19th century, but felt very challenged by the rising star, which was Germany happened to be. France was still an industrial power, but, but you know, getting less to be less so and fearing the continued growth of Germany. And they were all looking at each other, all wanting to compete. And everybody wanted to sort of have advantages for what they would sometimes is called their national economies. Today, the economies are, are much more intertwined internationally than they were then. A hundred years ago, uh, this internationalization had not gone as far yet. And it was believed that every industrial power needed to, the kind of territories for which they could use as exclusive markets for their products and where they could find cheap raw materials, which useful for their industry, such as copper or, or rubber or whatever, and also cheaper, uh, cheap labor, like the coolies the British used to build railways and do other dirty work and wherever it was needed. And so it was believed that without such territories at your service, you know, uh, to be used exclusively as you saw fit, you know, and to basically get an advantage against the competition, that you wouldn't be able to compete effectively and that you may well fall by the wayside and lose out in this sort of uh, rat race, you might say, among the leading industrial uh, powers, or as Lenin would have put it, imperialist powers. So everybody was looking for, and usually it was colonies. That was where the, the good stuff was. You know, even a little country like Belgium had uh, the Congo, where there was plenty of copper, for example. Well, Germany felt very underprivileged because Germany didn't have uh, rich, important, and big African colonies. They had a piece of the Kalahari Desert, and they had some of the, uh, the steps of uh, you know, the, the, the wonderful region of Kilimanjaro, which is great for sightseeing to see animals, but not so wonderful for resources, if you know what I mean. So they only wanted more territories, colonies, and not only colonies, but territories even within Europe. For example, uh, Germany wanted some, some of the goodies of Eastern Europe. For example, the rich agricultural land of Ukraine they had, uh, had their eyes on. And uh, that's important because Ukraine, of course, has been in the news a lot recently, and it's involved some of the same considerations. You know, who's going to get the benefit of the, the, the rich agricultural lands and its products you know, of the Ukraine? But there were particular reasons, particular products, which were very much uh, in demand and which certain imperial powers really wanted to lay their hands on. And I'm thinking here, one particular one raw material that was in great demand, became in great demand around 1900, uh, was the oil because, uh, for example, the Navy, the British Royal Navy, was switching from firing the ships with, with the boats with coal to oil. Now, Britain had had lots of coal, no problem, but oil, there was no oil in Britain. So 
So Britain had to buy its oil from the United States, which was a rival in the in the, in the rat race among industrial countries. And uh, then they realized there was oil to be had in Mesopotamia, which was part of the Ottoman Empire. So we have to have the oil of Mesopotamia. That's, by the way, today Iraq. Uh, so we have to have it, but uh, and that shouldn't be a problem because the Ottoman Empire was the weak man of Europe, as it was called, not only Europe, but also the Middle East. And it shouldn't be a big deal to grab a piece of territory. We had done it before. Egypt was part of the Ottoman Empire, and Tunisia was had been part of the Ottoman Empire, had been conquered by the French. So why couldn't we grab Mesopotamia? Well, the problem is that, that, that the Ottoman Empire is an ally of Germany. And if we were to war against Mesopotamia, you're going to have to have war against Germany. Well, so be it. In fact, the concern to have oil was very important, was, 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 was extremely important, especially since the alliance between the Ottoman Empire and Germany and the common project, the Baghdad Railway, a railway from Berlin via Constantinople to, to Baghdad, and opened up the perspective that the oil of Mesopotamia would flow uh, to German ports and basically be used to, you know, to, uh, to fuel uh, the German Navy rather than our Navy, and that would be a catastrophe. So if it couldn't happen again, time was seemingly against us, so we had to have that oil badly, and if it meant war against the Ottoman Empire, that's too bad, so sad, and if it means war against Germany, well, damn it, we have to have war against Germany too. And uh, that's why that's why Britain in those years actually approaches France and Russia, mighty partners, who can actually help to defeat Germany on land, while we send our troops from India to land in Basra and take Mesopotamia, which is exactly what happened during the First World War. You know, the British sent only a relatively small army to France and Belgium, but the bulk of their army actually went from India directly to Mesopotamia and fought in the Middle East against the Ottoman Turks. And what happened after ninth, after victory, Great Britain basically pocketed much of the Middle East, especially the oil-rich regions. And that, that was a major concern. And that was the reason for the for approaching France and Russia and becoming allies with them. Because until 1900, France was the enemy, and Russia was an enemy. And actually, Britain had better relations with Germany. So all that changed because of oil. And by the way, oh, not only oil, but rubber was also important. But you don't want to get into too much details here, you could get sidetracked. Well, okay, Jacques Pauls, what about, like, with the conclusion of the war, there was, of course, a, as you were, uh, a, you know, pointing to, it, like, a major shake-up, a realignment. So, I mean, the like, we had the, the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire is pretty much uh, coming to an end, the United States becoming much more robust. What would you say are, are some of the other major developments uh, coming out of this conflict that, that's served to shape uh, the, the direction in which uh, the world has well, taken? it depends at, on what level Politically you and to, economically. You to analyze the situation. I mean, certainly the, the map of Europe had changed big time. Some major empires had simply vanished. The Austro-Hungarian Empire was no more, and instead of that, you had a mosaic of little countries like Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic and Slovakia, and Hungary and little Austria, and they had a new country called Yugoslavia, which has been broken up ever since. So that actually what was once one big part of Central Europe under one umbrella of the Habsburgs, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, today is a mosaic of countries which has caused some problems. Uh, the wars in Yugoslavia come to mind, for example. I mean, Bismarck famously said about that, about the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, that if it didn't exist, somebody would have to invent it. Uh, he, he was joking in a way, but in the, he, he was a, a little bit right, in that at least it, it kept these people together, it kept them from flying at each other's throats. Now, whether that would have worked in the long run is a different question, of course. But uh, there are other, there are other um, ways in which the First World War then uh, influenced the 20th century. 
became the mother of the 20th century. And I think more importantly is to look at it at the social, the social level. I told you at, at first, that, uh, as I see it, that the war was wanted because it was supposed to serve as an antidote to revolution. It was supposed to be a way to stop the democratization in which the elites of Europe had no interest whatsoever. They did not like democracy at all, contrary to what we now sometimes seem to think. And they, uh, they also expected economic advantages. But on the social, on the social level, then, they expected the war to, 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 chase, to chase away once and for all the specter of revolution. They put a stop to the, this nonsense of a development towards more democracy, this democratization. Oddly enough, what happened was, is that the war produced the opposite. The war produced a revolution, and that revolution succeeded in Russia. And the war also made it necessary to avoid revolution in countries such as Germany and Belgium and, uh, and Britain to introduce major democratic reforms, uh, not only political reforms like widening the, the right to suffrage, the right to vote, uh, to include more of the lower classes, you know, the, the masses. Um, it also involved uh, social democratization, for example, introduction of the eight-hour day, as opposed to having people work, you know, many, many more day, uh, hours than, than eight in one, in one day, as had been the case in the 20th century. So the elites, essentially, uh, were very disappointed that the war that they had unleashed in high hopes of gaining from it actually produced losses from their perspective. But uh, it would be nice to think that the elites simply said, okay, well, that's just the way it goes, too bad, so sad. But no, they, they were not going to put up for that. They were looking for, out for an opportunity to undo these, these concessions, to make up for these losses. And that means, first of all, wiping out the revolution, which was now in, incarnated in the form of the Soviet Union. And secondly, still find a way to roll back the democratization, especially those reforms that were introduced after the war. And that crystallized in movements which we now describe as fascism. The fascism was a way in which we could annul democracy, essentially, bring in dictators who are going to basically do, do things we want to do, and above all, a, a fascist dictator who's going to wipe out the revolution. This, in this case, the revolution in the form of the Soviet Union. And that, of course, was, was the German dictator, that was Hitler, who was going to do that job. Uh, at the same time, the rivalry among the imperial powers still continued. I mean, the war, while it gave advantages to Britain, for example, possession of the oil fields in the Middle East, you know, and the great, great advantages and more leverage to the United States, especially with respect to going on in Europe, the war did not resolve the issue. The, the, the competition remained in the game even keener than before. The one big loser on, in, the, in the imperial, you might say the imperialist rat race, was Germany. But Germany was uh, <clears throat> still strong enough to remain a major player. And as a result of that, you know, the, the issue of, uh, you might say, who was going to be number one, who would be the winners in the, the race among national economies, among industrial powers, you know, that's still being an open question. And uh, in a sense, the Second World War <clears throat> is more of the same as the First World War. You know, the idea was still to settle you know, the, the issue as to who would get what in terms of, you know, of, of areas with resources such as oil and rubber and so forth, and also you know, what was going to happen, or what, what, how could we destroy the revolution, in this case the Soviet Union. And not the Germany, of course, that was the country, the power that was supposed to wipe out the Soviet Union. And when the Nazis actually prepared to invade the Soviet Union, there was a lot of sympathy for their cause in Great Britain and in, uh, in the United States. You know, we shouldn't underestimate that. Some people were disappointed that Hitler didn't wipe out the Soviet Union, that he failed in the great, his great mission of life to destroy the, um, to destroy the, the, the Soviet Union. 
which is basically the country, the, the, the cradle of the revolution. Mm. Okay, uh, just a, maybe one, one last question. Uh, here we are 100 years after uh, the, the start of World War I, and are, we're still sitting in the shadow of that great conflict. What would you say uh, briefly would be the main aspects of the war that, that, that we should learn lessons from in order to – that we uh, never again uh, repeat the mistakes well, of the past? An obvious lesson, I think. It should be obvious, but somewhere it seems to be one that our, our readers never learn is that wars, that people can expect wonderful things of wars, that it never works out, that they never work out the way they're supposed to. You know, that your plans never work perfectly, and the uh, objectives you have to achieve somehow are never achieved. Um, I'm thinking of the First World War, the great plans of the Germans, the Schlieffen plan, you could throw that in the paper basket after a few months, and the French plans were already thrown in the, basket early, in the paper basket earlier. But not only that, the idea that the, that the elites had, and they were convinced that the war would solve their problems, by the way, these ideas they got from intellectuals at that time, like Nietzsche, for example, and the social Darwinists, you know, who thought war was a wonderful remedy for social problems. You know, and if that didn't work out, instead of preventing the revolution, it, it produced a revolution. Instead of uh, enabling them to put an end to, um, to, to, to democratization, it forced them to introduce even more democrat, you know, democratic reforms after the war. So one of the lessons should be that, that war, war is going to give you nasty surprises. It's not going to work out the way you think. And uh, we hear a recent example of that is George Bush's war when he, he sent the Marines into Saddam Hussein's Iraq in 2003 and after a few weeks proudly proclaimed victory. Well, it's now more than 10 years later and, and we're still fighting in Iraq and there's no end to the misery. And even though Bush thought he had you know, basically achieved you know, the, the wonderful thing and from now on there would be peace in the Middle East and democracy and all that, all that. and none of that happened, in fact. I would argue that the situation in the Middle East today is far worse than it was um, in 2003 when Saddam Hussein was still ruling Iraq and when, you know, when, when Gaddafi was still ruling Libya, which is North Africa in the Middle East, but you get the point. So that, uh, so that the wars hold massive surprises for people who, who think they can benefit from it. And uh, oddly enough, uh, it's also true that the, the problems in the Middle East, of course, we can trace back right to the, to the First World War when the Ottoman Empire was broken up. Uh, as was the, just as the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire was broken up, and it, there emerged a mosaic of countries, mostly controlled by by, the, by Western powers such as Britain and France. France controlled Syria and Lebanon, and uh, the, Britain controlled Saudi Arabia and Iraq and, uh, and Kuwait and Palestine. They don't want to become Israel, and we know what kind of problems all that led to. You, 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 in a way, you could have said Bismarck could have said the same thing by the Ottoman Empire that is said about the Austro-Hungarian Empire, that if it didn't exist, one should have invented it. I mean, I have no sympathy for the Ottomans. I think it was an obsolete kind of system and certainly far from far cry from the democracy, which we'd all like to see. But you didn't have those terrible wars and terrible things that are happening in the Middle East now under the Ottomans. Hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot of ways in which we can now look at what's going on in the world and understand it better by understanding, by seeking to understand the First World War. Jack Powells, thank you very much for sharing your perspectives on this uh, conflict with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Jack Powells is a Belgian-born Canadian historian and author of the 2000 book The Myth of the Good War, America in the Second World War. He has a French-language book on the World War I available now. An English version will be available in 2015. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. 
You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.